From the High Center Studios of Messiah College in the Blackboard Factory of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 31 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Season four rolls on, and we are recording this episode in January 2018. Happy New Year, Drew and Josh. Happy New Year to you too, John. Josh is giving me a wave from behind the glass. (laughs) Drew, I'm very excited about today's episode. We're going to talk with a high school teacher at an urban and multicultural school in Boston who has been engaging his students on a question near and dear to my heart. And that question, of course, is, was America founded as a Christian nation? Have you ever put your thoughts to paper on that question? I never have. People ask me about it all the time, but I've actually never written a word about it. So this should be fairly interesting. (laughs) Well, I understand you also recently visited the school. Yes. Boston Trinity Academy uh, is the name of the school. It's in Hyde Park, the Hyde Park section of Boston, a very strong private school, grades six through 12. It consistently sends graduates to some of the top colleges and universities in the country. Uh, When I was there, I was talking to seniors. They were telling me where they were going to school, just great places. The faculty is excellent. Many of them have master's degrees and PhD degrees in their fields. And in fact, today, our, our guest, history teacher, Mike Milway, he has a PhD in Reformation Studies. He studied at the University of Arizona under Heiko Oberman. Some of you may recognize that name, maybe. Uh, clearly one of the leading Reformation scholars in the world. So uh, so it's a, the faculty is very strong. I was also really impressed with the school's sense of mission. It's a faith-based school. It's a Christian school. But it's one that takes the life of the mind very seriously. And, and what is also very, very impressive about Boston Trinity Academy is the student populations, the diversity of the student population. The school's 34% white, 30% African-American, 19% Asian, and 10% Hispanic. So, you know, there's a lot of schools out there, including Messiah College, where we both work, Drew, who talk a good game about racial reconciliation. But this school really lives it out in a, in a very unique way. I think more people need to know about this this school, Boston Trinity Academy, especially those who are in uh, the Christian or the evangelical community. I, I just am trying to imagine what that, you know, that that is the dream for so many schools. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's what they're always aiming for. And to see uh, see numbers that seem to reflect already reaching that goal, I think, is is quite impressive. Um, how did you get connected with the school? I have some old friends who teach there back in the days when I used to live in Stony Brook. Uh, we were involved in a Stone, Stony Brook, New York. We were involved in a school there, the Stony Brook School, and some of the faculty from the Stony Brook, my Stony Brook days are now at Boston Trinity Academy. And they invited me back in 2014 to deliver the commencement address there. And I really enjoyed my visit back in 2014, but didn't really get a chance to see the day-to-day life of the school kind of in operation since classes were over and I was just there to kind of fly in, give a short speech, you know, uh, have dinner with some people and then leave. So then last week they invited me back. Uh, actually, they invited me back much earlier than that, but I was there last week to help them launch their 2018 J-Term week. Each January, Boston Trinity spends an entire week exploring a particular place in the world. Usually it's a, a sort of over somewhere overseas, but this year, very fitting, I think, 
they decided to focus on rural America. So classes are canceled for the week and students go to special seminars. They have a whole host of seminars with guest speakers that they bring to campus. And, you know, some of these seminar options, Drew, I was just kind of blown away. Uh, A few of them that caught my eye, they gave me a list. Uh, They had a seminar on jug bands of the early southern United States. Poverty and opportunity in Appalachia was one of the topics. Uh, We talked a little bit about J.D. Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, while I was there. Rust Belt Realities was another one. Life at the Border. Uh, Let's see, you could have taken a a seminar on Black Odyssey, the Great Migration and African-American Rural Narratives. And then one sort of near and dear to your heart, Drew, which you probably could have taught in your sleep, was uh, Wampanoag and Eastern Woodlands Nations. So yeah, so so they you know and and there, there are dozens more you know these selections ch- kids make the choice and they put them in one of these seminars and they really sort of dig into rural America very broadly defined and then also during the day they spend time on these uh, projects during J term related to rural America so I had a chance to wander through the halls with Tim Belk who's the assistant headmaster there and we saw students working on Amish quilts in one classroom. Another group was playing jazz music. Some were studying literary narratives of rural America. And the thing about it, Drew, is you could just feel the kind of energy in the building. These kids were fully engaged in their education. You know, I left a, I left a little bit jealous, you know, that sort of my own kids couldn't uh, attend a school like this. I was there uh, to kind of get them started. I gave a plenary talk, a uh, chapel talk on rural America and then I taught two seminars on the history of rural America. We, we didn't really get too deep. We talked about, you know, the two different visions, Jefferson and Hamilton, those kinds of things, slavery. But our episode actually today focuses on another part of my visit. In fall 2017, Dr. Milway, who I just mentioned earlier, assigned my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, to his senior American history students. Millways, we'll talk a little bit more about the assignment during our interview here in a few minutes. And I think we'll also hear, by the way, from some of his students, uh, which I'm really excited about, that we actually get some students uh, on the podcast. You know, I left, I was just very flattered to see just how engaged these students were with the subject of, of the book. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward as, to this conversation as a former middle school teacher myself mm. at, at a private school with a kind of social justice mission. You know, this is something I, I, I resonate with, something I care about, but, you know, I'm also married to a public, public school teacher. So, you know, th- yeah. this is a really interesting subject for me and, and how, we, how we deal with some of these social issues uh, in our educational system. But I'm also just fascinated to hear about, you know, accomplished historians teaching high school students how to yeah. how to think historically because I think that's something that we don't get enough of. So we'll get to the we'll get to Mike Millway and the, the the students from Boston Trinity and some commentary here in a, in a minute or two. But first, Drew, tell us how our listeners can connect with us here at the podcast. Well, we as always we are very lucky to have dedicated patrons and sponsors who help make this podcast possible. Especially, we want to thank Lisa DeGuardi, Kate Logan, Gretchen Adams, Ron Schooler. And actually our newest um, gold patron, Joshua Lawrence, for joining the team and helping make this podcast possible. Welcome, Josh. And as always, we are also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. 
if you want to join us and become a patron, we you know this is we don't have pledge seasons. We're just kind of always collecting new new <laughs> donors. So sorry if you this this part of the the spiel bores you, but just head over to thewaveimprovement.com/support, and there you can find all sorts of ways to support us either financially or just getting the word out. And you can do that through um, following us on Facebook or Twitter. And that's at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. Yeah, Drew, I was uh, I was just at the American Historical Association meeting in Washington, D.C. I went to a session on podcasting where uh, one of our guests, Liz Kovar, a previous guest, was holding forth. Two of our guests. So, I mean, oh, yeah. Well, Nate DeMeo, too, was there kind of in spirit. He couldn't make it, but they, they played some audio from him. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Liz especially was talking about just how much work it goes into to produce each episode, the time that it takes. Uh, you know, we are a staff of three here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, part-time. All of us, you know, none of us are full-time podcasters, at least not yet. So, uh, we could really, really use your support to kind of keep this thing going where, you know, we operate on a shoestring budget. We take it from, from episode to episode, really. So head over to uh, the blog, thewayofimprovement.com, click on support and, uh, you know, take some of that Trump tax cut that you're getting and put it to a good cause. <laughs> well, before we get to our interview with Mike Milway, I think you have some commentary for us, John. That's right, Drew. I must admit that when Donald Trump began his run for president in 2016, I did not think the time-worn debate over whether America was founded as a Christian nation would be a major issue, either in the campaign or in his presidency. Trump did not seem to have a horse in this race. And to this day, I don't think I have ever heard him say that America was founded as or continues to be a Christian nation. Trump's GOP rivals, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, they seemed much more interested in talking about this kind of Christian nationalism. I can now say, however, that I was wrong. Granted, Trump seldom dabbles in the rhetoric of Christian America, but his evangelical followers certainly do. 81% of American evangelicals, a statistic that we have cited often here at the podcast, voted for Trump partially because he promised to advance the Christian rights political playbook for winning the culture wars. Ever since Jerry Falwell stepped onto the national stage in the late 1970s, this playbook has been an essential part of conservative evangelical political engagement. In a class I'm currently teaching at my church, I described the various chapters of this playbook. Chapter one, America was founded as a Christian nation and enjoys a special relationship with God. Chapter 2, America's status as a Christian nation is in jeopardy. The United States today embraces a false view of separation of church and state. It has removed prayer and Bible reading from public schools. It has allowed big government to interfere in our religious lives. And it has allowed abortion and gay marriage. Chapter 3, we must reclaim or restore America to its Christian foundation. Chapter 4, we must do this through electoral politics, by electing the right people who will in turn pass the right laws and appoint the right judges. Chapter five, if we do all these things, we will win the culture back for Christ. And chapter six, if all this happens, we're not sure what we will do next. But we do know that God will once again be pleased with the United States. 
The foundation of this playbook, of course, is explained in chapter one. If the historical premise that America was founded as a Christian nation proves to be untrue, then the entire playbook is useless. Historians are all about building foundations and at times tearing them down. So needless to say, I am thrilled to see Christian students like the ones at Boston Trinity Academy wrestling with the playbook's historical foundation in such engaged and profound ways. Our guest today is Mike Milway. He teaches humanities and history at the Boston Trinity Academy in Boston, Massachusetts. He received his Ph.D. in history at the University of Arizona under the direction of Heiko Oberman and has taught European history at Wellesley College, Tufts University, and the University of Toronto. He has published widely in late medieval and Reformation history. We are thrilled today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have Mike Milway with us, Dr. Mike Milway from Boston Trinity Academy. Uh, and he is not only uh, here himself, but he has his students with him as well. Say hello, students. Tell us your names. Hey, I'm Isaiah. Hello, my name is Jackie. Hi, my name is Jonathan. Now, I, I am sure if I saw these students' faces, Drew, I would recognize them, but I don't have their names down. But I was there last week, so I, I definitely would recognize them probably if I saw their if I saw their faces. But good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for taking some time in your busy day to join us. And on behalf of uh, all, uh, all of us here, I want to say thank you for the invitation, John. It was wonderful to have you on campus last week. We all enjoyed our dinner conversations, your classroom uh, time with us, and uh, the one-on-one time we had with you. Great, great. Now, for those of our listeners who have never heard of Boston Trinity Academy, and which they should know about it, but maybe they don't, tell us a little bit about your school uh, you know, who you are, you know, where you're located, um, what you're all about. Boston Trinity Academy is the brainchild of about 10 people 15 years ago who sat together in a, a, a living room of our chairman of the board, Rob Bradley, saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could provide an excellent education, an excellent independent school education of the quality of Exeter, Andover, uh, Nobles, and Greenaw, right. but with a Christian uh, pillar under that, and more importantly than um, uh, than both of those, could we provide it in an urban environment where, for socioeconomic reasons, uh, students don't have access to Andover or Exeter or Nobles? Great. Now, now some of the students there, uh, what attracted you to Boston Trinity Academy? Is your, is your teacher correct? Or do you feel like you're getting a, a first-rate um, education there at the school? Yeah. Um, so my experience at the school has definitely been um, wholesome in that aspect. Um, many of my friends, um, uh, actually all of my friends, come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds as well as uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. And, um, that diversity of thought has really, um, helped me to, in my understanding of certain things that we go through in education and as well, um, as that, um, it's helped me in, in life and how I, how I view different social justice issues and, um, just, you know, going through life and viewing, um, 
different things that we have to deal with um, through multiple perspectives. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I was saying this, we did, we, we did our intro before you guys came on, and we were talking a little bit about BTA, Boston Trinity Academy, and, you know, a lot of schools like to talk a good game about things like racial reconciliation and diversity, but, you know, you guys are living it uh, every day, and it's just a, a, a sort of great place to be. Mike, tell us a little bit about your personal journey to Boston Trinity Academy. You are, a, you know, you are by training a Reformation uh, historian. Uh, what, what sort of led you to uh, want to teach at this place? Several things came together. And had anybody told me 10 years ago that I would be teaching in an inner city school in Boston, <laughs> I would say, you've fallen off the wrong truck because that's not me. I had trained to be an early modern uh, Europeanist under Heiko Obermann, University of Arizona, and he's one of the more respected right. Luther scholars in the world. Um, and out of that program, I worked at the University of Toronto. I worked at Wellesley College. I taught at Tufts University. Uh, these are wonderful places, and I always enjoyed my jobs. Uh, I had some of the best students in America, certainly on a socioeconomic level, privileged by and large. A few things came together to, to, to make me consider a change. One was my wife said to me many times repeatedly, Mike, you're so much more of a teacher than you are a researcher. And I love research, but I actually agreed with her. And I was getting to a point in my career where I thought, do I really need to spend two or three more years writing that one article for the three people in the world who really <laughs> <laughs> or can I actually inspire students to use history, regardless of the direction that they choose professionally, and become better global citizens? And I thought, you know what? It's worth trying. And then the second thing that happened was at that very moment, there was a documentary called Waiting on Superman. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I kind of saw uh, how socioeconomic underprivileged children did not have what I had growing up. And I thought to myself, how tragic that was. I basically met everybody's expectations around me, whether the expectations, my parents, my colleagues, my friends, my neighbors, but had my uh, social expectations been different, like many of the kids in the inner city, I expect you to drop out of high school. Maybe I would have too. And I just thought, how disappointing. I'm going to try. So I came to this school for a year, just as an experiment, thinking after a year, I might go back to Tufts or Wellesley. Um, and in fact, I loved it so much, I will never, ever leave. <laughs> I'm, fabulous. I'm sure your students are happy to hear that too. Or maybe they're not happy. I don't know. <laughs> right? I, know you're a I know you're a tough teacher, Mike. So, right? um, so you're, you find yourself uh, uh, as a uh, Reformation scholar, trained by one of the top Reformation scholars, Heiko Oberman, in the world. Uh, you've been at, in these elite liberal arts colleges. You've been at one of the premier universities, the University of Toronto. And now you sort of have to become a generalist, right, in the, in the high school classroom. And you're actually teaching American history uh, now. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how do you, you know, what do you expect uh, out of your students? What are you trying to accomplish in the environment like Boston Trinity Academy that you're teaching in, what, what are you trying to accomplish with students in a high school American history course? You know, what do you, what do you expect of them? 
Well, it was a daunting change at first, uh, an exciting challenge. Right. The learning curve was steep at the beginning. I had never taught outside of not only European history, but actually early modern yeah. European history. At Wellesley College, I had to talk my way into being able to teach a class on the rise and fall of the British Empire because they felt that was outside of my world of expertise. I came here and I was expected to teach world history, Japan, China, uh, the Americas. Uh, the learning curve was steep. It was exciting. In the end, the goals are not that different. Very few of my undergraduate students at the university level went on to become professional historians, but I knew every one of them, regardless of whether they went into medicine, law, uh, became at-home parents, could benefit from the tools that historians provide, how to read documents. Uh, uh, a lesson I learned from Leopold von Ranke that understanding has to precede judgment. Uh, and. If my students leave with an understanding of the content of American history, great, and I hope they do. But even more important than that content at some level is can I help them to think historically? Can I help them learn how to read documents as historians do? And my goal is much more toward the latter at high school, but it wasn't that different, especially at the undergraduate level in university. Drew, Drew, there was this moment where we had dinner with some of the students and some of the faculty last week, and I, Mike and I have a, have a common love of kind of teaching historical thinking, right? So there was this moment where I said, it's not about history, it's about historical thinking. And there at the end of the table, Mike stood up. He gave me a standing <laughs> ovation. Hallelujah. <laughs> right. So I, I think some of this, I'm guessing some of the students who are there with you right now are at that dinner, too. Um, or at least, at least a few of them. Now, two, yes. two of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, students, uh, tell me what you like about uh, Dr. Milway and his classes. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> we, all, we all have wanted to talk at once. Yes. One of the most wonderful things about taking Dr. Milway's class is the way that he teaches with such um, with just such a passion and such a love for what he, not only for what he's teaching, but also for the students that he's teaching. Um, He's extremely dynamic and he just is so, you can tell by the way that he talks about um, every article that we read, every chapter of either your book or the other textbook that we read, you can tell that he just has this burning passion for us to really be learning. Um, And that really does inspire, I know myself, I know I can speak on my behalf, but I can tell that it inspires my class as well. Um, He encourages conversation that builds a bridge between the past and the present, um, and then will also possibly give us tools for the future as well. And um, yeah, I just really really appreciate the fact that he is just so passionate and um, he just, you can really tell um, how much he loves his job. Anyone else want to chime in? I mean, yeah, you, you fall in love with a, with a subject when you have a teacher that is so passionate and has such a contagious passion for uh, that subject. And and you can go through a physics class and, and have um, a teacher that's, that's boring and then you won't love physics. But if you have a teacher that um, is, is so passionate and it draws you in and shows you the importance of historical thinking, that's when you fall in love with the subject. And that's what Dr. Mellon has been able to do for myself. Yeah, that, that's high praise, Mike. Uh, you got some great students there. Tell me, Mike, what is it like um, teaching American history 
in such a, uh, a school with such a, a diverse student population. Um, you know, whenever you teach, a, you know, I'm sure this is true with all forms of history, but especially you're in America, you're in the American context, uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, in contemporary life, questions of diversity and race and multiculturalism and racial reconciliation and all these things all the time. Um, how, has, how has teaching, and I don't know, maybe you don't have a point of comparison, but how has teaching American history at Boston Trinity kind of forced you to think differently about the past, about your pedagogical style, about what you're doing in the classroom? Uh, that is a deep question. Let me, uh, let me start by saying that one of the reasons I love studying history is the same reason I love traveling. I love going to France and meeting French people who ask different questions, have different values, come up with different answers to those questions because of their values. I actually enjoy studying history for the same reason. The people I'm reading about in the past are different from me, ask different questions, have different values. I learn from them. I think I become a a better global citizen myself, teaching to students in one classroom who come from China, Korea, hard parts of inner city Boston where gang violence is happening every day, where some are given a Mercedes Benz for a graduation present and others can't afford the tie of their uniform if they lose it. Um, some of my students have suffered loss because of, in their family, not personally, uh, because of gang violence in Boston. And I'm teaching in that challenging context, but I'm also benefiting from it. And so when I say we need to go to another place and be open-minded about them, my students in the classroom are experiencing that literally with the student next door to them. So... Um, is American history different in that regard than teaching European history? Not entirely, but certainly the context of Boston Trinity Academy, where that is on the doorstep. When I was at Wellesley College, they boasted on their webpage about diversity. I think we had students from 52 countries, and arguably that is a diversity. I have more diversity in one class of 12 students here because it's really the socioeconomic difference. Students who have never left Boston, other students who have been in 15 or 20 countries in their life, sitting next to each other. And I find that real diversity, genuine diversity, whether it's ethnic, uh, linguistic, socioeconomic, exciting, challenging, but more of the former. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well put. Um, now, one of the reasons I met with your class or classes, I think there was more than one class there uh, when I was at when I was at Boston Trinity last week was you had a sign was America founded as a Christian nation? So uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, maybe I should have gotten Drew to ask this question. I feel awkward talking about my own book. Tell me, tell me about the decision to, to, to wrestle with this question, was America founded as a Christian nation? And you know, tell me about the assignment, how you went about teaching this book, um, because a lot of our listeners are really interested. They're attracted to the podcast because they've either read you know, my work in this area, or they're interested in these questions about uh, American history and its relationship to religion and so forth. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you incorporated the book into your class. So I was introduced to the book by your good friend, uh, Judy Uland, mm -hmm. 
She suggested I read it. In all honesty, John, at first I thought, oh, no, I was new to the school, new to Judy. And I thought, yet one more book on this question (laughs) that upsets me uh, and Christians deal with very poorly. Um, Am I going to be reading another David Barton, wall builders kind of book? And I took it home, uh, fearing that that would be the case, that I'd have to come back to the school and talk to Judy about it, whom I (laughs) was getting to know and love. Um, and I took it home in your first chapter on how to study history impressed me so much that I thought, regardless of the rest of the book, I'm actually going to take this chapter and assign it on the first day of my history classes, just as a historiography, the five C's. And I'm sure these students could tell you about those five C's. Um, then I started reading the rest of the book and I thought, not only is it a good book, Not only do we need to discuss it, but how can I use it best in the classroom? How could I use it best for their learning experience? I decided, in addition to one textbook, mostly we read primary sources that I have called over the years. Um, But I thought, I want them to read this whole book as an example of somebody who does history on a question that matters to them. This is a Christian school. Their parents have opinions on this very question. And it was such a balanced approach. I'll let the students uh, chime in here on the three parts of the book that they have studied, discussed, uh, written a book review on, as a matter of fact. So, Um, I mean, yeah, before we even go into it, it was so refreshing to have a, a book that deals with kind of concepts and ideas rather than the textbooks with facts and names and numbers and dates um, that we've been having our whole high school, middle school career. Um, to have a book that deals with complex issues is um kind of humbling in your educational learning. Um, we were exposed to um there is no one answer. And as frustrating as that may be, it's it's a valuable lesson. History is complex. You've been quoted by saying it's a, it's a foreign country, even a foreign language. And um, that in, in itself is such a um, historical uh, a lesson that I'll, I'll keep forever. But what, what else do you guys think about it? One of my favorite um, parts about the book was most likely the format and the organization, probably. Um, it was extremely well organized in the way that each chapter followed a very similar suit to the one prior. Um, and also it was very balanced in the way that there were um, rich facts and then right next to it was a wonderful analysis that provided a very easy to follow yet still informative and um, highly intellectual um, read. And it was certainly enjoyable for me to read. Um, Also, I think looking at the facts that I've been learning ever since elementary school about my own country um, from a new Christian perspective has definitely been, um, was definitely challenging for me at first because growing up in a more conservative Christian household, I've always just kind of adopted the fact that, yes, America was founded as a Christian nation. But looking at both sides of it really did challenge me and charged me to continue research and to continue looking into um, both sides of the story. Yeah. And I, I was, uh, just personally impressed with, uh, your ability to stand your ground, uh, in your conclusion that although there is a lot of evidence historically for both sides of the question, uh, in essence, it is not a historical question. 
Um, and I think that your ability to view the topic from both sides and from each of the, the five C's, the lenses that you taught us, um, I could go into them if you'd like to, but, um, <laughs> maybe I'll save you because, I, <laughs> I, I, I assume you know them. <laughs> Although I sometimes forget. <laughs> tell me this, tell me this guys, uh, students, um, and I'm going to put you on the spot. I didn't prep you for this question, but maybe you can come up with something off the top of your head here. Um, those five C's, right, are, are sort of, I think, at the core of not only how to approach the past, but they also are sort of very helpful in kind of thinking about how to engage the present critically. Can you think of an example in which, you know, I know Dr. Milway has been sort of schooling you on these, on these five C's, right? Can you think of an example in your kind of everyday lives where you kind of, we kind of applied these kinds of historical thinking skills to something that you read or something, some kind of encounter that you had or something that, you know, happened in a conversation or an argument or a debate. Um, again, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but um, how, how, how might these things be applied or how have they been applied? Things like context and change over time and, and uh, complexity and contingency and causation. How, how, you know, have you been able to use these things in your kind of intellectual life? Um, yeah. So Dr. Malloy has a philosophy that to be a historian, you have to be bilingual. And what that means is you have to be able to read the past, but also understand the future. Um, and so or at least the present. The present. Right. Yeah. Not the future. The We're present. not prophets. We're not prophets. Yeah. Um, and so what we do in class is we read the Wall Street Journal and we read the New York Times and we um, we we present these um, these headlines, um, and what that does is we were encouraged to use uh, these the five C's historical his, historical thinking to understand how did we get here, um, what kind of change over time um, um, is happening here, why why are these new policies um, implemented, what what effect is this wildfire going to have um, on on the nation as a whole? What does yeah. Go ahead. And yeah. Out of the classroom, um, one of my, I think if I could choose a favorite of my seats, it would probably be um, complexity yeah. because I think outside of the classroom, even in just my day-to-day -day relationships with my friends and with my family, you, it really is an important lesson to learn that there's so much more um, beyond the story. So whether you're thinking about um, the American Revolution and why it started, there's definitely you can see in a textbook, it will say that there are three reasons why the war started, but you know that there are actually thousands of reasons why it started. There were many, um, there are many reasons why it led up to be such, um, to be a real war. And that's the same thing in our everyday lives. With every person that I encounter, I know that there's a more complex story behind who they are and why they are the way that they are. So I think that um, taking this to my everyday life has definitely influenced um, the way that I interact with people. What, um, going back to that, uh, the New York times, wall street journal project, maybe Mike, you could jump in or one of the students, what does that look like sort of pedagogically for you, Mike? And in terms of, uh, in terms of processing it, is there a particular assignment that you do? Like, how do you, you know, you read the New York times, you think historically about it. How do you kind of assess that or, 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 you know, um, what does that what does that look like in the kind of nuts and bolts kind of day to day classroom? I mean, is it a a daily thing? Is it a writing assignment? You know, what does that look like? Uh, 
Not every single day, but most okay. days I start the class by handing one student the New York Times and one student the Wall Street Journal and saying, as I take roll, could you look at the front page and report on it to the class Excellent. Uh, what the story is? And I actually lay these two papers on the left side of the table and the right side of the table. And I remind them that to understand America today, you have to read on the right and the left with an open mind. Um, six months ago, I also had them reading Breitbart News because Steve Bannon was in the White House. And I thought, well, to understand America, you're not going to get it just from these two points of view. You have to go even further right. Now, I've actually taken Breitbart News off with his exit, but that's the purpose of it. Uh, it, it serves many opportunities pedagogically, though. When I have them write a book review of Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, I remind them, or maybe for the first time teach them, that a good re book, book review has two parts. They have to report on the contents of your book, your argument, your thesis, its evidence so well that if you were to read their book review, and I could send you some, you would say, yes, Jackie got it. Yes, Jonathan understands my argument. Yes, Isaiah gets it. The second part of a good book review is commentary. They have to find the strengths and the weaknesses in it. And in fact, you may not agree with their commentary. And I say, that's what a newspaper is. On the front page, we're looking at reporting. On the opinion page, we're looking at commentary. But a book review has to have a little bit of both. That's just one example of using the, the, the newspaper at several levels. But almost every day we refer to that. I just think, I mean, if I can share, you know, um, so... Uh, Dr. Field is my advisor uh, as an undergraduate. And you were a lucky man. 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, and I was one yeah. of his first advisees. He, he, my, my first year here at Messiah was his first year at Messiah. And, and you know, my, my, I knew I always loved history. It was anytime in my free time I was engaging history, but I really never took a history class that I liked until I got, got to college. And I think that I, I fear... And one, th one of the things I tried to do, I taught middle school for three years after graduating here at Messiah. And, you know, one of my passions has always been to, to you know, revamp this often hated uh, curriculum because it's, it is so, there, there's so little historical thinking being taught in most history classrooms. I, I always give my, my wife little little tidbits because she, uh, she sometimes put, she's an ESL teacher who sometimes pushes into to social studies classes, so I always give her yeah, little I mean, tips. Yeah, I think I think that's what I mean. How how you know if my kids forget all the facts, you know, two weeks <laughs> after the class, that's fine. But if I've taught them something about how to think, especially students who are not history majors, which I'm guessing all of you three there, the students there, are probably I don't know any of you any of you going to major in history in college? Probably not. I yeah. do not plan on it. Not that I know. Of. No, that's fine, right? But no, you, you, you're gleaning these these you're gleaning these thinking skills. I think that's where that's where history can best serve a kind of democratic society. Yeah. Right? I have a quick question actually for you, John. What's your favorite C? Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> I've never really thought about that. Maybe we should I all mean, go yeah. around. Ja Jackie shared her C? favorite C. What's your favorite C? Um, you know, I, I, I like change over time, huh. you know, because so often you can go into the past and just pull something out, you know, and it's, it's kind of frozen in time and you just immediately apply it today as if nothing happened, you know, in between. So uh, I often, that, that's an important lesson that we sometimes forget. So we don't have much time left, guys, but let me, let me go back here to the students. 
and I'm going to put you on the spot again. And what I want you to do is, and I know you can do this because you did it to me when I was there last week, but for our audience now, right? Give me one criticism, right? Feel free. I got thick skin. I can take it. Give me one critical comment, criticism of was America founded as a Christian nation? All three of you have to give me one. Okay, I will start. Okay. Um, First, one thing that I noticed about the book is that you did a really good job about um, reporting on various different people groups and um, making sure to get a wide variety of all different um, perspectives of the different times in America and especially the way that they were viewing um, Christianity and how it was forming the nation as in its very formative years. But one thing that I noticed is that there was not a very, um, there wasn't a very, um, there wasn't enough of a focus on the role that women had to play in the forming of um, America as a Christian nation. So one thing that we talked about in class is that how were the children being raised? Um, Was God being used in their grammar books? Was um, Christianity the foundation of their education? So this new generation of children that are rising up, um, they're learning from their mothers and they're learning from their school teachers who are predominantly women. So I was just wondering if you could justify um, why there was a lack of... um, women in this yeah. book. Yeah, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna respond directly to everyone. I actually did, Drew, when I was out there. These were some of the critiques I've already heard. Um, but it I, I think I said this when I was out there. It, it is a it is a fair point. I think it's in some ways can be an oversight of the book. And I, I referenced um uh I'm blanking on her name now, Linda Kerber's uh Republican motherhood, right? And the goal of women in kind of creating good Republican citizens. So good. Okay. That's one critique, right? We need more women in the book. Good. Another one. Yeah. um, I was just wondering uh, when I was reading your book, there was, um, you briefly mentioned, you know, the civil rights movement at at some point. Um, But throughout the book, you, uh, I was just wondering, uh, about your use of or um, discussion of the role of African-American people in the nation's history. Um, Because, you know, the facts, the facts are that, um, that African-Americans are just as American as, um, you know, European Americans. And I think um, from my perspective, I think that they have um, just as much of a reason to be uh, spoken about in their role, um, uh, you know, uh, helping the nation to get on its feet, to be built up. Yeah. No, I think again, another fair criticism, you know, I, I would just, my only thing I wonder, you know, what, what kind of power they had to even shape the course of the nation, you know, because of slavery, but it's certainly something to think about. And, and again, right. Uh, we talked about this when I was there guys, um, you know, history is a kind of work in progress. You know, I, I hope that, I hope that the book will not just uh, be the sort of be all end all in the final word on these questions, but that through the kind of conversations that you're having in classrooms and classrooms all around the country that use the book, you know, we, you will continue to kind of, uh, kind of think more deeply and, and develop new insights about this whole big question. One more though, we got one more student there, right? Who has a criticism or is it just two? 
I mean, they took the best one. They ones. stole your two good ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Do I take a shot at it or no? Or do you just want to agree with them? Oh, I, I mean, I agree with them. It was a fabulous book. <laughs> there were students. Uh, I read all of the book reviews. Yeah. Uh, many students did talk about the absence of a black African yeah, uh, Christianity. Yeah. You talked about Quakers. You talked about Puritans. You talked about Anglicans. What about gospel music, black Africans, slave uh, Christianity? Um, but uh, the the criticism that just a few mentioned was they didn't like the fact that you didn't answer your own question in the end. Now, I think throughout the book, you said it's really not that historical of a question. Right. When we say was America, which America was that? When, was it founded? You raise, well, was it founded or planted or some other better verb? Um, as a Christian, well, what form of Christianity? Was it uh, Anglican? Was it uh, Puritan? Was it liberal? Was it fundamentalist? Was it evangelical? Um, and nation? Well, what do you mean by nation? So, but I was surprised at how many students were upset that you didn't in the end answer it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, students, um, do you maybe at least understand why I didn't answer the question, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. What, what is your reaction, you know, to that? I mean, what you have to do first is read, read the title page. It's a historical introduction. Um, and that's so important because this is this is our beginning to uh, formulating our opinion. And you did such a great job of opposing both sides. Um, and now we get to we get to dig deeper and look into different uh, primary sources and make form our opinion. And your book did a great job of not opposing your opinion. And that, um, that's kind of what the beauty of it was. So for me, I, I was um, not not frustrated at that ending. No, yeah. And uh, again, I said this earlier, but I was just impressed by your resolve. Um, it's not a historical question at the end of the day. Um, and I'm sure across the nation, uh, you get questions like that all the time. Uh, but what But what do you think? Politically, what do you think? And even um, we had a chapel time where we, we asked you questions um, and you received many political questions. Okay. And, and even that same question a few times, um, and your resolve was the same. Yeah, from each individual matter, you wanted to look at it um, from the lens of who you are, and that's a historian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, I admired that resolve. It's not a historical question. That's why I'm not going to answer it, but I will give you evidence on both sides so that you can um, decide for yourself. And, you know, that's, I think that's the best we can do as historians. You know, I like to tell my students history, and Drew, I don't know if you'd agree, history is a sort of limited discipline, right? It only takes us, it only takes us so far in what we can accomplish with history. Sometimes my students, I think, because I so, like I'm sure like Dr. Milway too, you know, I'm so preaching like historical thinking and so forth that, that they tend to think this is some kind of like, like worldview, like this is how you, you know, this is like, your faith, right? Yeah. And I'm like, no, hold on. This is just gets you so far. Then you have to draw on other resources, whether it be your faith, your system of morality, your conscience, your whatever, to to then make those kind of ethical, you know, I love the way uh, 
Dr. Milway quoted Von Ronke, right, or at least referenced him, right, about about uh, uh, reserving judgment, right? But then at some point, you do need to make a judgment, right? And history is a uh, sort of pathway towards judgment, but it, it doesn't always come immediately with a kind of ethical right or wrongness. Now, there's a lot of people who would disagree with me on that, and they would disagree with Von Ronke, too, on that front. But um, John, John yeah. Drew and I... John and Drew, I wonder if you both would agree with me that uh, historical thinking, although it's terribly important and it's worth all the effort that we put into training students to, to think historically, it certainly doesn't even answer some of life's most important questions. Yes. Historical thinking will not allow Jackie to ever understand whether she is in love. It will right. never help Jonathan to understand, does life have meaning? Um, uh other siblings have to come to bear on maybe life's most important question. Well, that's why that's why I'm such a strong advocate for what you're doing at Boston Trinity and even what even what liberal arts colleges yeah. do, right? You know, because because as much as, you know, we're loud voices, right? I'm sure I'm sure Mike, you're a loud voice at Boston Trinity for this kind of historical thinking. I'm a loud voice here at Messiah. Mm -hmm. But we often have we often have other disciplines that are asking different kinds of questions about the human experience, right? Whether it be a religion class or an ethics class or, uh, you know. Actually, and we, we probably experience this a lot here at Messiah because Messiah has such a strong nursing program. But one of my favorite things is to talk about history of, of medical practice with students who have been trained quite rigorously in medical ethics yeah, um, yeah. because there can be some real conflict. And I, I teach a Native American cultures course, and we talk a lot about um, – uh, uh, indigenous approaches to to medical uh, services, and sometimes it conflicts with the the very basic ethics that they are taught. And you know that becomes this interesting question of 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 where where do you draw that line? Where do you lay the ethical down for exactly a moment so you can at least reach understanding? Right. I and, I, I actually like doing his, teaching historical thinking to non historians in many ways yeah. more than than you know which uh, is your what, typical which is history what, major, which is what Mike does every single day of the week. Absolutely. Right? Hey Isn't guys, it go ahead. to know how often we get it wrong ourselves? A yeah. student just used your book to criticize me three days ago. After you <laughs> left, we had an opportunity as faculty to demonstrate in front of students what we wanted to call a civilized debate. Yeah. So our headmaster chose me and another colleague, and we differ on gun control and gun rights. Right. So we had a debate in front of the school, a civil debate, and it was a civil debate. One of my students from History 12, who had read your book, came up to me after that debate and said, Dr. Milway, you were cherry-picking evidence from the <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, you're right, I was. Yeah, um, yeah. So That's wonderful. Those are great, great teaching moments, too, right? Yeah. Hey, our time is just about, our time is up, actually. You know, okay. I just want to thank you guys so much, uh, Mike and the students there. Um, I loved my day there. I actually wrote a lot about it on my blog. Some of you might have seen that. Um, I loved my day I spent there, and I'm really appreciative that you guys were, had took the time here at the end of your busy high school day to, to come on with us and uh, talk uh, about Boston Trinity and history, and it's just just wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, very thank much. you. And we look forward to your next journey this way. I'd love thank to come so back much. anytime, anytime. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thank you for the invitation, Drew. Thank you for all the way you helped uh, facilitate this. Okay. Take care.
Well, that was a unique episode. We've never had four people at once, especially three high school students. But whew, they were smart as a whip, those kids, weren't they? I mean, it, it is. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're a little blown away by, you know, just how impressive the, the, the BTA students were. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I've been working, working really hard uh, for many years trying to get my level of expertise up to where it is. And then you you. Know, here, these high school students, you start to get a little nervous that maybe you're, you know, yeah. you need to get out of the way. You know? I told them when I was at, when I was at Boston Trinity, I told the entire student body, I said, you know, cherish this. And, you know, the amazing thing about Boston Trinity Academy is just the, just the openness to sort of intellectual life that these kids have. Yeah. Uh, you just don't see that uh, with students that age, even college freshmen, you don't see it, yeah. see it that much. Well, and it's, I mean, it's probably one of the more uplifting as educators. And, you know, we've said this before on the podcast, but both you and I really, both of us really like to be in the classroom. And that's, that's why I'm in this game. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing is I want to be in the classroom. And, and, and that, that kind of energy is exactly yeah. what you feed up. I, I happen to be in the middle of just one of the more amazing classes I've ever taught because of how, how amazing the students are. And it, it, it you know, I'm, I'm, floating on my way home uh, from class because of just getting to see uh, minds engage with historical thinking. I'm teaching an interdisciplinary class, so it's not even just historical thinking, but any sort of just kind of critical, you know, exercise of the mind is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an incomparable feeling. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I came back from Boston last week, really energized. I'm really energized right now after, (laughs) after listening to that interview. If you're in the Boston area, and you're looking for a kind of, you know, faith-based uh, high school for your kids, check out Boston Trinity Academy. Google it. There's just some amazing things going on there. And I wish more people would know about uh, what's happening. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap for today. Yeah, I'm, I'm nervous about what we're going to have to do next to top it. Yeah, we, but, uh, you know, I think, we're, I think we can, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we got some good guests coming up. I'm really excited about the people that we're going to be talking to over the course of the next uh, several months as we sort of roll out season four, maybe our best ever season. I, Although, yeah, you're giving me a smile. We say that, we say that about every episode. <laughs> though, but, uh, well, we're lucky we have great episodes. We, and, you know, we great have guests. some phenomenal guests as well. <laughs> as right, who we heard from today coming up. So stay tuned, head over to the Patreon site, uh, support us, tweet us, Facebook, tell your friends. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is, you know, doing some good things here in terms of trying to bring historical thinking to our contemporary lives. So again, I hope everybody has a great day. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com and keep the conversation going by following us at TWOILH Podcast. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, and Joshua Lawrence. It is also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of the High Center at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests, Mike Milway, J. 
Jackie, Isaiah, and Jonathan. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia.